Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. So we were discussing in chapter 28 the question the Alter Rebbe addressed was that how does a person deal with something that can disturb you and rob you of your joy which is that in, mid, in the middle of your spiritual heights when you feel intensely spiritual and you're flying high and you feel deeply connected and right then and there how is it possible that you can have suddenly out of nowhere an ugly thought, a negative thought an alien thought happen to your mind and the reason it's so disturbing and so it's because you start questioning what, what am I really? am I really am I really spiritual? or maybe I'm deluding myself how is it possible if I were truly spiritual how can I have at the same time simultaneously while I'm so spiritual and I feel so connected and I feel so whole at the same time I should have within me such disturbing things such things that are ugly and disturbing the skeletons in everyone's closet so who, who? I, I thought it, I, it says that actually when somebody is so getting closer and closer to Hashem the Yetzer arise works double time to make things harder for you so it means that maybe you are doing something right that's why big uh, things happen but it still doesn't take away from the discouragement of unable to control those, uh, those uh, I don't know if that's okay very good very good so that's what he writes and on the contrary you should feel good because not only is there nothing wrong with you on the contrary you're doing something right because the fact that your negativity inside of you is alive and well it's only a sign that the godliness inside of you is so vigorous and so vibrant that you woke up you woke up the opposition from its sleep the sleep is fighting for his life because he knows he knows that you're, you're formidable enemies on the contrary it just shows how real that connection is. The fact that you're getting a response means how real it's the connection is. Because the truth is, and this is a deeper understanding in the whole concept, that everything that God created is on a balance, positive, negative, plus, minus. That really, in a real sense, the ugly and the holy the ugliest and the holiest are really they match each other they're a reflection of each other they're connected to each other and we find that's true with the Jewish history 
What was the most beautiful, the peak moment in Jewish history? The peak moment in Jewish history was... Mount Mount Sinai. Moses, representing the Jewish people. For the first time in Jewish history, and ever since the last time in Jewish history, went to heaven and back. Everyone goes to heaven, no one comes back. He went to heaven and back three times. The peak, he broke through all the barriers in heaven and earth. Shattered all the barriers. He was on top of the mountain, speaking to God, learning the Torah. What was the ugliest moment in Jewish history? The angel. The sin of the golden calf. Which happened at that moment. Simultaneously, <laughs> Moshe was achieving the peak moment at that moment. What was the golden calf? The golden calf. As the Talmud puts it so <laughs> eloquently, it's imagine Mount Sinai was the chuppah. Imagine the, the Jewish people were the bride, God is the groom. The chuppah, the mountain was on fire for 40 days. Imagine the bride being unfaithful. Under the chuppah. At the, mar- at, the, at the wedding hall. What hope is there for this marriage? This is DOA, dead on arrival. This, this is, you can't even contain yourself. You, the marriage, you, you can't. So this is, the Jewish people reach their nadir, the lowest moment. The most, most <coughs> treacherous sin. So how is it possible that simultaneously you can have the highest moment, the peak, and simultaneously you have the lowest moment going on at the same time? But this is what it means in a deeper sense, that the positive and the negative are really almost two sides of the same coin. And that's why they match each other. It's not artificial. Talmud says the greater the person, the greater the Yetzirah. The greater the potential for good, the greater the potential for corruption. Some of, our, some of the most talented people, most talented artists, self-destructive, committed to self-destructive. The more talented a person is, the greater they are, the greater their potential. If it's not utilized properly, it leads to the greatest destruction. Not external things, bad things happen to me. But the fact that I, here I'm all inspired and I feel so spiritual and I feel so intimate with Hashem, and all of a sudden I have these, while I'm praying, at the heat of prayer and the heat of my davening, when I, while I'm getting so close, all of a sudden I have all these ugly thoughts, you know, so it's, it's like a, a contradiction. Like, is this for real? Is my spirituality for real? If I was so spiritual, why do I have this ugly side to me? Why do I have all these inner skeletons in my closet? So maybe my whole thing, maybe I'm, this whole thing is not real. So it's very disturbing. It robs a person of his joy. How can I serve Hashem with joy and engage in Torah and engage in, in, in prayer when this is not, this is, who is the real me? Is it this or is it this? Maybe the, the ugliness, that's the real me. And this is just a, uh, a pretense. So the Alter Rebbe is saying that don't feel, on the contrary, you should feel joyful. Because you have to realize that the spiritual and the material and the, and the, are, really, are really two sides of the same coin. And the greater you are, the greater you are. 
The more spiritual you are, the more challenged you're going to be. Because the greater the potential for goodness, if that potential is not realized, then it turns into ugliness. So ugliness is really, and is really a, it's really there to prompt you. It's not, think about it, if the Jewish people would not have sinned with a golden calf, what would have happened? That would have been Mashiach. Moshe would have come down the mountain and 3,300 years of pain and suffering until this very day, as we speak, Mashiach hasn't come yet. All of that would have been, wouldn't have been. We would have gone straight into the land of Israel. That would have been the redemption. This world would once again have been a paradise. All the nations of the world would have accepted the seven Noahide laws. They were in awe of the Jewish people. Moses was like, <laughs> Moses was a universal figure. The Jewish people would have marched into Israel with Moses. That would have been, that would have been Mashiach. The whole world would have been transformed. No idolatry, no paganism. The world would have been a, a garden of Eden once again. So imagine the potential of that moment. They had such potential. Moses representing the Jewish people reached the peak, broke through all the barriers on top of the mountain, on top of the world, celebrating the marriage of the Jewish people and God. At that moment, because they didn't live up to that potential, therefore, it led to the greatest disaster. Because there's no neutral, it's one or the other. There's no in-between. It's one or the other. It's one extreme or the other extreme, each extreme reflecting the other. Because it was the peak of the peak, it was the nadir of the nadir. It was the low of the low, the lowest of the low. And that seems to characterize Jewish history in general. It's either a breakthrough, like a six-day war, or it's a Holocaust, God forbid. So the two are really two sides of the same coin. So the fact that a person has within him Two souls. And one soul is so spiritual and divine and is like the flame compared to the flame that yearns and goes upwards and yearns for godliness and for wholesomeness. And simultaneously we have a, a soul within us that pulls us downward. These two souls, it's within the same person. These two souls are really, in a way, there's two sides of the same coin. Because we have such divine potential. Because we have this godly soul, this divine spark. That's why you have this other soul. Because when that potential is not realized, you have all this negativity. And this negativity is active. So when the godly soul is, is, a, is, a, is awake, and the godly soul, when you're in the middle of intense prayer and intense Torah study, and is active. So, yeah, this negativity that pops into your mind is actually there to prompt you to become even more spiritual, to reach even greater heights. It's an encouragement that you're doing something right and that you have such potential at this moment. And therefore, what's the only response? How should a person respond to this negativity that's disturbing you in the middle of your prayer? Go deeper into the prayer. Become oblivious to the obstacle. Don't engage in the obstacle, but become oblivious. Realize the message, the message of this obstacle, the message of all this negativity inside of you is telling you, on the contrary, essentially you're godly, essentially you're spiritual, and it's just there to prompt you to go deeper into, the, into, into that experience, to discover new heights, because it's like a test. And he uses the analogy. Imagine you're in the middle of prayer, and in the middle of prayer, 
a, an idolater decides to disturb you and to mock you. Not to engage in conversation and dialogue. If someone wants to engage in dialogue, that, 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 that's, a whole, that's good. Then I'll engage them and, and then I can go back to prayer. But if someone is there to disturb you, the idolater is there to disturb you, to mock you, to dismiss you, it's very disturbing. You have to realize it's a test. Don't engage. Completely ignore. Become completely oblivious to this obstacle. Go so deeply into the prayer until you become oblivious to your surroundings. So the whole purpose of a test is you ask yourself, why is it so difficult? If God wants us to do the right thing. Why is He testing us? Why is He making it so difficult? But on the contrary, the test, the test is telling you that it's prompting you to go deeper, to reach new heights. The word test in Hebrew is nisayon, nisayon comes from the word nes, to lift up. It's prompting you to go to deeper heights. So the fact that you're bombarded with this ugliness that on the surface appears to be very disturbing, where is this coming from? Here I'm in the middle of intense prayer. Here I'm being so spiritual and so immersed. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I get all these thoughts, foreign thoughts, alien thoughts that are disturbing my prayer, that doesn't allow me to focus and concentrate on my prayer. It's on the contrary. It means that you're doing something right. And these disturbing thoughts are like a test. They're there to prompt you, to elevate, to, to lead you to new heights, to elevate you to new heights. Because it means you have potential to go even higher. As good as your prayer is, you have potential to go even higher, to reach a new depth in the prayer. And therefore, that's why it's, it's negative. But the negativity is there, it's, it's a response to what's really going on in the positive. The negative is a reflection of the positive, the positive is a reflection of the negative. From the, the ugliness of the negative, it just shows you the beauty of the positive, it just shows you how high you can go. From the lows of the low, from, you can see the heights of the heights that you, that's within your reach. Otherwise it wouldn't disturb you. So it's really, it's really like a, a scale, it's really a balance. The greater the person, the greater the evil inclination, the Yetzirah. The greater the test. Adam, the greatest man, created by God himself, and he was tested with the ultimate test. He failed his test. Do you know how difficult that test was? Adam incorporated every single human being who ever lived. You just imagine his Yetzirah, his evil incarnation, made up of all of ours put together. We can't even deal with one. Imagine he had to deal with every, all of ours put together. It was such a huge test. Had he withstood the test, Mashiach would have come. Again, that would have been it. From, from the lows, from you see the results, the negative results of the fact of his failures. From his failure, you see the potential heights that he was able to reach. As great as he was, being created in the image of God, had he withstood that test and listened to Hashem, he would have, it would have elevated him to a whole new height. So this radically revolutionizes how you look at yourself. Instead of feeling sad and depressed, if I'm so spiritual, why do I have all this ugliness inside of me? Why do I have all these skeletons in my closet? Why? It's so disturbing. How can I... Like uh, Rivka was disturbed, Rebecca was disturbed when she had these, the twins in her, Yaakov and Esau, one pulling her in one direction, the other pulling her direction. He says, how is it possible that one child, one baby could be pulled in so, two different directions? And the prophet told him, relax, it's two souls, two separate children, and they're in a wrestling match with each other. And they're, they're, they're held together because the truth is, they're connected in that way. The positive, the plus and the minus are, are connected. They balance out each other. Because one is really a reflection of the other. And at a deeper level, one is really a reflection of the other.
And the negativity is really just a test. That's all it is. It's a test. And it's a prompting. It's a, a message. You're doing great. As a matter of fact, you're doing so good. Hashem wants to elevate us to a higher level. How does He elevate us? Through this message. When you get this negative message and you get all this ugliness inside of you, which usually hits you right at the height of your most spiritual moment, be joyful. Realize what the real message is. You're doing wonderful. But just it's time to go on. It's time to, to reach even a deeper level. Until you become oblivious to the... By using that prompt and receiving that message and interpreting the message properly, instead of being discouraged, going deeper into the prayer, until you become oblivious to that distraction, that is the whole purpose of the message. That's all it is. So any, all the ugliness inside of us is really comes from the great potential that we have inside of us for good, the infinite potential that we have for good. And the greater the potential for good, the greater the ugliness. Like in the case of Adam, in the case of the sin of the golden calf, and throughout our history. And the same is true on a personal level. The greater the person, the greater the challenges. So instead of being disturbed and discouraged and demoralized, realize on the contrary. This is the message that essentially you're godly, essentially you're good, essentially you're godly. It's all about godliness. And this is the, the, the ugliness, the opposition, the negativity. It's all it is is a test. And it's directly connected to the, to the height and intensity of, the, of, the, of your spiritual potential. And the way to deal with a test, there's a difference between dealing with the physical world around us that we're meant to engage in. A test, the way to deal with a test is by completely dismissing the test. Ignore it, by completely dismissing the object that's testing us. Ignoring it, being oblivious to it, dismissing it, not engaging in it. A test is meant to be overcome, not to engage. When a person engages in the world, when a person is involved with the world, you're meant to engage in the world. You have to eat. You have to eat in a proper way. You have to engage and elevate that experience. The way to deal with a test is not by engagement. Don't engage, don't engage this, in the analogy that he's using, don't engage this idolater that's disturbing you, don't engage them in conversation. Ignore them. Don't enter into conversation. Become oblivious to them. Go deeper into your prayers. Go so deep that you completely ignore them. That, that is how you deal with the test. And then the test will, will disappear. The obstacle will disappear. So the way to deal with this negativity is not by way of engagement. If in the middle of prayer suddenly you have all these negative thoughts popping into your mind, and it's usually in the middle of prayer that all these thoughts enter your mind. Your best business ideas usually come up right in the middle of when Ezra, right in the middle when you're in the height of prayer, the heat of the moment, suddenly every single extraneous thought, which you couldn't remember in the office, but here suddenly it's crystal clear, it comes to you sharply, the best ideas, uh, the strategies, what you're going to say and do, don't be discouraged and don't be demoralized and don't engage in conversation. Why are you disturbing me now? Let's be gentle, be polite. Don't be polite. Don't ask your thoughts, please leave, now is not a good time, come back later. No. The answer is it's a test. And the way you look at a test is get the message. That means there's something very vibrant and vigorous about your spirituality going on at that moment. And it's just a prompting, it's time to go a little deeper, time to elevate you to a new height. So go deeper into the prayer, become oblivious to this thought, dismiss this thought rudely, rashly, dismiss this thought, I have no time for you now. You're out. And just go deeper into the prayer. 
and do it joyfully. So this is this changes your whole outlook. Instead of looking at the world as being a negative place, beset by problems, obstacles, uh, obstacle course. Life is one big obstacle course. And which could be very demoralizing and discouraging. Realize, realize the real message. What these obstacles are really telling. You're doing wonderful. You're doing so great. Don't forget, God only tests those who are strong. God only tests those who have what it takes. And if you, once, you start, once you start viewing these tests from that point of view, then, then you can approach the test with joy and, and dismiss it and, and just grow from it. It becomes a positive experience. Don't take it for face value. If you take all the obstacles and negativity that's thrown our way in face value, it's be very demoralizing, very discouraged. But if you look at it on the contrary, it's, it's the ultimate affirmation. It's God's vote of confidence. That means that you're good. That means that you're doing something good. That the good inside of you is vibrant and vigorous and alive. Otherwise, why would you be set with all this ugliness? It's only because so you're doing something so right. You're hitting it on the nail. You're on the mark. And that's why all this negativity is just, is just coming at you. And if, and if you will rise to the occasion, negativity will dissipate. Had the Jews withstood the test, the sin of the, they wouldn't have sinned with the golden calf. Mashiach would have come. If Adam would have withstood the test, Mashiach would have come. And same as our own personal life. By withstanding the test and rising to the occasion, by being strong, and intensifying and being even more vigorous and deepening and just becoming oblivious to the negativity when rising to the occasion you just become elevated to a whole different level takes you to a whole different dimension takes you to a whole different level but you have to remember that's who you are essentially essentially you're godly essentially everything is godly the negativity is really all it is is just a test and it's connected to the height it's just a sign of how high, of how successful you could be and how high you could, you could reach and that you're in the right direction. That's all it is. It's two sides of the same coin. So don't be discouraged by all things. This is a trap that many people fall into. They become very discouraged and they become very demoralized. And it changes their view of themselves and of the world. Suddenly they start viewing the world as a negative place a harsh place. And they start viewing themselves. They start taking the ugliness for granted. Oh, yeah, that's who I am. The skeleton in the closet becomes who you really are. Not all the good that you're doing and all the potential that you have. So this is a... This is a, an essential perspective how one has to look at all the negativity. And... Um, and this is not only speaking of the tzaddik. This, this is speaking to all of us, the average Jew, 99.9% of us. That we have to remember that essentially our essence is godly. That's who we really are. And even the negativity is just a reflection of the godliness. It just shows us how godly we are. How genuine it is. How profound the godliness within, inside, within us is. How core it is. How deep it is. And how genuine. Okay, today we begin chapter 29. Tonight, by the way, is the uh, birthday and the yard site 
of Moses, of Moshe Rabbeinu, talking to Moshe. It's the seventh day of Adar. And um, it says, when Adar enters, we have to increase in joy. And um, why is the month of Adar, the entire month of Adar, a month of joy? Because this is the month that Moshe was born. And because of Moshe's birth, Moshe brought about two redemptions, two miracles. One miracle was the miracle of the Exodus from Egypt, and the other miracle was the miracle of Purim. And Paman drew lots. He was very happy when it, it fell out in the month of Adar, because he says this is the Jewish people's Achilles heels. This is when the hero died in the desert, never made it into the Promised Land. So this is the Jews' vulnerable spot. Little did he know that that was the day that Moshe was born. And therefore, it's Moshe's birth, the merit of Moshe's birth, what Moshe's birth brought into this world, the eternal Torah, which is always young and vibrant and eternal and never dies and never diminishes. Um, it's that merit that brought about the downfall of Haman, the complete transformation, the joy of Purim. So it's not just Purim, it's the complete month of Adar, the whole month of Adar is a month of joy. If you have a, a court case, try to have it in this month. This month is a very suspicious month, a very powerful month. The energy in this month is very powerful. This year we have two Adars. So we just concluded, we just finished the last three chapters of the Tanya, chapter 26, 27, 28, deals with the subject of joy. Because this is an essential part of a Jew's service to God, and that is to always be joyful. Like someone was asked Lubavitcher Rebbe, he says, how are you? He says, Baruch Hashem, thank God, I'm always joyful. I'm always besimcha. And this is the, the state of a Jew. A Jew always has to be besimcha. It says in the end of the first part of the Code of Jewish Law, Arachayim, the way of a Jew, he, start, it says, he starts out with, Shivisi Hashem l'negdi samid, Hashem should always be before me. And he concludes... The last words are, Toiv Lev Mishtatamin. It's always good, you should always be joyful in heart, you should always be you know, up, joyful and uplifted. Um, our natural state should always be joyful, hopeful, optimistic, positive. And if we're not, we're, if we're grouchy and uh, we don't feel good, and we don't feel wholesome, and we don't feel. That's an unnatural state. And it's impossible for us to serve Hashem. It's impossible for you to serve Hashem and really do the right thing unless we're in a state of joy and feel good about life, feel good about ourselves, feel good about us. in a very uplifted, positive, positive mode. And it has nothing to do with anything external because externally a person could be very successful now, they did a study. People who were naturally upbeat, optimistic, and then they got hit with terrible tragedies out of nowhere. Suddenly, everything was going well, and suddenly out of nowhere, one tragedy after another after another. And then they did a study with people who were grouchy, negative people. And suddenly, out of nowhere... They just got hit like a bolt of lightning. They won the lottery, or they just like like suddenly <laughs> the company took off, and they made millions. They became millionaires, and you know all their wildest dreams. 
came true. Now, temporarily, for a brief moment, those people were very cheerful and good-natured good and hopeful and optimistic. When they got hit with a ton of bricks, they became very, very sad. And those people who were grouchy by nature, when they got hit with this bolt of lightning and they got successful, they became very, very hopeful, very joyful. But after a few months, the study showed that everyone reverted back to their nature. The people who were by nature good-natured and kind and optimistic and hopeful and cheerful, they, they came back to their good old self. And those who were by nature were always grumpy and grouchy and negative and petty and uh, you know, small-minded and superficial. Uh, a few months later, they reverted back to their original nature as if nothing happened. So obviously, you know, we all think if something external changed, we would, it would change us. Nothing changed. Nothing external will change your, your nature. So when we talk about joy, we're not talking about an external joy from external circumstances. Joy comes from within. It's a joy that comes from being in touch with your neshama, from being in touch with your divine self, with feeling connected. And that gives you joy. When you, when you are proud and you feel connected, that's an inner joy. That's a joy that flows from the inside out. And it illuminates your life. It's like a smile that comes from within. It's not something external, superficial. So the Alter Rebbe, they just discuss it's been three chapters on dealing with um, things that may get in the way of a Jew's joy. How can you feel joyful when we're not paragons of virtue? There are many things that we did in our lives, or we're doing in our lives, that embarrass us. We're embarrassed of ourselves. We're not in the highest level. We're not doing the right thing. So how can you tell a person to be joyful? <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a tzaddik. I, I'm very far from even, even being a Benini. So how can you tell her to be, be joyful? So he dealt in chapters 26. And then he dealt with how can you tell a person to be joyful when he's hit with a ton of bricks? And he asked Saris, how do, you, how do you tell a Jew to be joyful? And then he discussed in the, pre, in the chapter 28, chapter 27, he discussed how can you tell the average person to be joyful when he knows that he can struggle for the rest of his life and yet he'll never become perfect, he'll never become the tzaddik he will always have to struggle so it's like you'll never, you'll never win knowing, if you knew from the start from, the, from the, the get go that you're never going to win it's always going to be a struggle that's very demoralizing so he dealt with that issue in chapter 27 and chapter 28 he dealt with this issue we just discussed that the person is very disturbed by the fact that how is it possible that within the same person you can have all this beauty and at the same time you can have all this ugliness within the same person? Like, who am I? What am I? Schizophrenic? What, what is this? Is this which part of me is for real? Is it the moments when I'm in shul and I'm all inspired on a holiday when I'm all dressed in white and I feel white inside and I feel beautiful, angelic, heavenly, sublime, great? Those rare moments <laughs> that are few and far in between. Or all that ugliness that I have inside of me, or, or that, that I'm constantly bombarded by, or I don't succumb to, but I'm bombarded by, and it's very disturbing. So who is the real me? Maybe I'm deluding myself, maybe I'm kidding myself. And Dr. Rebbe just addressed, addressed, finished addressing that issue. So 
he removed all the obstacles um, that could impede in the Jews' joy. Now, chapter 29, the next few chapters, he's going to discuss another obstacle that could get into the way of a Jew's feeling joyful and feeling connected. And that is what he calls Timtum Halev. Timtum Halev means when your heart is clogged. When, you, when you're not capable of feeling anything. Your mind may not be clogged. You may have a very sharp perception, a very clear perception. You understand godliness. The concept is clear to you. Your mind relates to it. But your heart is completely clogged. Indifferent. Couldn't care less. So, why should I care? Why should I change? Makes no difference. And it's very difficult to go forward. You know, what's the... uh, What's the first sign of illness? The person, the person is sick. What's the first symptom? First sign of illness? Loss of appetite. <laughs> when you lose your appetite, that's that's the first sign of illness. And the same is true with spiritual illness. The person is suffering from a clogged heart. He has no appetite. He's not hungry. I know all these wonderful things. You can hear, you can listen, you can understand. I'm not hungry. I'm not seeking. I'm not yearning. I'm hungry. I'm not hungry. I'm very happy. I'm very complacent. I'm satisfied. I'm very happy with myself. Okay. I haven't made a single change in the last year. I'm not planning to change. If anything, things, things are going downhill. I'm happy. That's fine. Nobody's perfect. We're human. There's no hunger. There's no fire. There's no yearning. There's no... Like, it's, like, it's like all abstract. Very nice ideas, nice concepts. You can hear, you can listen, you can understand, you can even repeat it. But it leaves you cold and different. Your heart is clogged. Your arteries are clogged. Your spiritual arteries are clogged. The blood is not pumping. The heart is barely moving, barely alive. There's no vigorous movement. And that's a, that's, a very, that's a very serious illness. This is an illness that can actually... The person who's doing everything right is actually more in danger of this illness than the person who's doing something wrong. Because the person who's doing something wrong, you know, yeah, you, have, you have a medical who doesn't feel guilty. He, uh, he knows he's doing something wrong. So he feels terrible. He feels horrible. At least once in a while he has some guilt pangs. He knows something is wrong. I have to change. Okay, I'm lazy. I'm not ready to change. The problem is the person who's not doing anything wrong. Not doing everything right. What did I do wrong? I'm not a, I didn't do anything terrible. My life is just mediocre. That's all. Nothing wrong. Nothing right. There's nothing special. Nothing really going on in my life. Just I'm coasting along. I'm doing the right thing. Pay my taxes, I pay my dues. I march where I have to march, I do what I have to do. I'm a good citizen, I'm not doing anything wrong. The person has a sense of complacency. Instead of a sense of restlessness, that 
you know, something is wake up, something, something is, doesn't sit right with you, and you're yearning, and you're searching, and you're seeking, and you, you know, that sense of restlessness is the beginning of all spiritual growth. If a person, if a person feels complacent, satisfied, smug, and content, how do you wipe away that smugness, indifference? That's the worst thing in the world. How do you deal with indifference? You know, a wise man, they asked, once asked a wise man, what's worse, ignorance or indifference? So the wise man said, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> you can't deal with indifference. If someone fights back, if someone argues with you, okay, at least there's someone alive, there's somebody home. He's fighting back, he cares enough to fight back. Indifference, oh, I care. It's nice, it's beautiful. It's... But it doesn't affect me. It doesn't change me. I'm, I, it doesn't affect me. I'm complacent. I'm smug. I'm content. I'm satisfied. It's the most difficult thing issue to deal. With. That's called timtum halev. The heart is clogged. You can't reach such a person. You can't reach yourself when the person's heart is clogged and closed. Nothing you can say and nothing you can do. The person clogged. Everything is filed in here, mentally filed. But you know it's not going to make its way down the, the narrow highway called the neck. It's a one-way, one-lane <laughs> one highway that was called bottleneck because all these wonderful ideas, they filed in our mind. But for some reason, it doesn't, it doesn't reach. It's, 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 uh, it's rush hour, you know, there's heavy traffic. <laughs> you just can't, can't get home. It doesn't, doesn't reach home. It doesn't reach to the heart. So you don't, you're not moved. You're not touched. You're not inspired. And nothing changes. You remain indifferent, cold, indifferent. And uh, so this smugness, this arrogance, this, this, this complacency, this is so difficult to deal with. That's what Alter Rebbe is going to address here. How do you deal with this? And this happens to everyone. It happens to the best of us. This smugness, especially to the best of us. <laughs> the people who are not the best of us, they're not so smug. They know it's not good. They're embarrassed. They're ashamed. You know, they're not ready to change. They're having t- too much fun. At least they think they're having fun. By the time they figure out it's not fun, it's already too late. They're addicted and, <laughs> and they're suffering with their pain, but it's too late. But the person, the best of us, those who are doing the right thing, not doing anything wrong, and they're complacent. Okay, let's uh, begin. Those whose souls are of the level of Benonim must seek means of contending with yet another difficulty. Occasionally, and even frequently, they experience a dullness of the heart, as though it had turned to stone, and try as they might, they cannot open their heart in prayer, which is by definition the service of the heart. This is an expression taken from the prophet. Hashem says, when Mashiach will come, I will remove the heart of stone. Reminds me of the story. Someone once came to Lubavitcher Rebbe and says, Rebbe, what's, what's wrong in my life? What do I need? I have everything I need. I'm married. I have two children. I march to the Israeli Day Parade. I send in my $18 to whatever, <laughs> the campaign. What's, what's wrong with my life? <laughs> what am I missing? The Rebbe said, he says, are you a stone? A stone can stand in one place for a thousand years. It doesn't budge. It's very happy. 
it doesn't bother anyone, no one bothers it. It sits there, it doesn't move, it doesn't... He said, anything that has a higher form of life than a stone, a tree has to grow. A tree stops growing, it's not connected. And an animal can't sit still and grow. An animal has to, has, can't sit still, it's a roam. A human being has a mind. So in addition to roaming, your mind, you have to develop your mind, your imagination. And a Jew, you have a divine essence, you have to connect with Hashem. So, are you a stone? Are you so rigid and so oblivious and so dead? You're so complacent, you're so happy and satisfied with yourself. This is what it means when your heart is like a stone. Unmovable, unbudgerable, unchanged. You're not, you, there's nothing even wrong. You're not lacking in anything. Just complacent and smug and self-satisfied, but very foolishly smug. What are you so smug about? And he says, and cannot open his heart to serve Hashem, which is prayer. Prayer is not just about praying to Hashem with kavanah, with heart, with intent. Prayer is a heart. The whole essence of prayers. It says in the Torah, you should serve God with all your heart. The rabbis say this is referring to, to, the, to prayer. Because prayer is when you serve God with your heart. Prayer is a time. Not just a time to pray for your needs. On a deeper level, prayer is a time when you experience, when you fulfill the commandment to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your being. So prayer is a time to, to love, to feel with your heart, to experience something with your heart. In prayer, we don't learn anything new. That's the difference between prayer and studying Torah. To, you, you only fulfill the mitzvah of studying Torah by learning something new each and every day. In addition to repeating that that you already know, making sure you don't forget that you've already learned, but every day you have to learn something new. That's the nature of learning. Every day you have to learn something new. Prayer, we say the same prayer every day, over and over and over again, thousands of times, the exact same prayer, so predictable, you know exactly what the next word is going to be. Prayer is not a time to learn something new. Prayer is a time to take everything that you've already learned and take it to heart. Experience it. Live it. Mean it. Feel it. When you say, love your God with all your heart, you're meant to actually experience that love. So that's the essence of prayer, to, to serve God with your heart. But if your heart is clogged, and your heart is like a stone, and you're indifferent, and it seems that no matter what you do, there's nothing you can do. You're just indifferent. You can hear all these beautiful stories, and hear all these beautiful thoughts, and you can even understand them, and even repeat them. And you personally, it doesn't hit home. Completely, it's not a like abstract, it's surreal, it's nothing to do with me, I'm not talking about me so how do you deal with it, with this clogging of the heart the spiritual clogging of the heart Chassidut explains that prayer is the service of the heart, in a twofold sense A, it takes place in the heart for in prayer one strives to extend his intellectual apprehension of godliness into the realm of emotions experienced in the heart the love and fear of God B. The object of prayer is the heart, for in prayer one tries to transform the nature of his heart, to steer it away from the mundane desires to which it naturally inclines, and to direct it instead towards a yearning for the spiritual and the godly. To accomplish both these objectives of prayer, the heart, of course, must be open and receptive, and thus timtum halev 
is a major hindrance. So B, the second part of prayer is that a person should actually, not only should we do the right thing and do the mitzvot or stay away from the, trans- the prohibitions, the transgressions, but we should actually develop a love. We should want to do the right thing. We should have a feeling for godliness. We should want to do things that are godly. And we should run away or be repulsed by things that, that are the antithesis of godliness. Not only we shouldn't do the wrong thing, we should stay away from doing the wrong thing, we shouldn't even be tempted to do the wrong thing. Because it should, we should find it repulsive. Anything that's godly we should find attractive. Anything that's the antithesis of godliness, a sin, a transgression, anything that disconnects us from godliness, we should find personally repulsive. This is what prayer is to accomplish. So it has to transform your ego nature. Instead of naturally we feel attracted to materialism, and spirituality is very abstract to us, in prayer, through prayer, you can transform your feeling, your heart, at least during prayer. At least during prayer, for those brief moments of prayer, you should feel a love and an attraction to godliness. And you shouldn't even be tempted to do anything that's, that's, that's not godly. But if your heart is clogged like a stone, there's nothing you can do. You cannot accomplish. You can't really pray. You can go through the motion. You can go 180 miles an hour, as most people do in most shuls. And you can, you can, you can uh, fill your obligation and, you know, Take care of your burden. And, but that's not prayer. That, that's like paying income taxes. You do, the, you do the bare minimum and you run. You do your prayer where you have to and you're out of there. That, that's, that's, you and God are, have no connection. It's like you have no time. It's, that's not prayer. Talking about prayer, prayer means prayer. Prayer means you're connecting. Prayer means you're really praying to Hashem. So, but it's impossible to accomplish this and to achieve this and to really pray if your heart is clogged. If your heart is not open, then how do you, how do you pray? Your heart is closed. Continue also. Also, the heaviness in his heart prevents him at times from waging war against the evil impulse and sanctifying himself in permitted matters. As the Alter Rebbe explained in chapter 27, it is the task of the Benoni to suppress the desires of his heart, for example, by not eating as soon as he has the urge to do so. This requires a battle with one's evil impulse, which demands that he gratify all of his desires. When his heart is dull, heavy, and insensitive, he cannot fight the evil impulse. This is something he described earlier, that, that there's a positive commandment for a Jew to sanctify himself. And that means, in addition to fulfilling all of the 613 mitzvah, there's a mitzvah, there's a general theme, the spirit of the law, of all the laws. And that is to live a holy life. Not to define yourself by materialism. Don't live a life of indulgence. Don't live and define yourself by money, power, fame, materialism. You have to have a deeper definition. Your life is not about money, power, fame, career, labels, titles. That, that's not what it's about, the money in the bank. That's not what it's about. Your life is about your relationship with God. That's what your life is about. The money, power, fame are tools. That's all they are, means to an end. Don't confuse the means with the end. You have to have a deeper definition, a higher definition. When do we know that a person has a deeper definition? That you're not defined by materialism. When we are materialistic and we 
and we are, you know, our life depends on materialism. So how do I know for real whether this is, for me, it's only a means to an end or whether that's my definition? And the answer is there's one test. Do you have the ability to walk away from it? If you don't have the ability to walk away from it, then you are trapped, you are imprisoned, you are defined by it. You are not defining it, you are defined by it. If you can walk away from it, then you are the master. Then you are defining it, it's not defining you, and then it becomes a healthy, wholesome experience. And it becomes a tool, and a means to an end, and it becomes something that's holy. So this world becomes holy only when you have the ability to walk away from it. Once a week on Shabbos, a Jew walks away from the world. If you can walk away, drop your business, you can have a billion dollar deal on the table. I'm sorry, I'm out of here. I don't care. If you have a deeper definition than money, and you can just walk away from that whole world. Cold turkey, middle Friday, it comes at the end of the day, that's it. I don't care what's happening. It's, I'm out of here. Then you are the master. Then you know that the six days of the week that you are involved in the world, you are elevating it. Then it becomes a holy experience, a wholesome experience. But if you cannot walk away, then you are imprisoned. You are trapped. You are defined by it. How can you do tikkun olam? How can you elevate the world when you are the world? You are the problem. <laughs> you can only elevate when you're above it, when you transcend it, when you're holy. When you're holy, then you can bring holiness into the world and elevate and transform the world. But if you yourself are not holy, if you live a life of indulgence, and you are imprisoned and trapped and defined by all the externals, money, power, fame, and that becomes who you are, you cannot bring any light, any illumination, any holiness into the world. On the contrary, you can just bring darkness into the world. So, this is what he brought earlier, that the Talmud HaChacham, the Torah scholars, would delay their meal for two hours. It was time for breakfast. They were hungry, but they waited two hours to show that they are the masters. Yes, I'm hungry, but so I'll push off two hours. And they took those two hours and learned Torah. Not that they gained any time for learning Torah, because they were planning to eat and to learn Torah anyway. But it was just the idea of showing mastery that I am in control of my urges and my impulses. I'm not a prisoner of my urges and my impulses. I can walk away. A person who can walk away from his natural urges and impulses, he is the master. Then when he eats, that eating, your table is like an altar. Your act of eating becomes an elevating experience, a spiritual experience, a meaningful experience. But you can only accomplish this if your heart is open. When you feel, when you're inspired, when you feel connected, So although you may be able to avoid transgressing a negative prohibition, even with your heart clogged, and you may have discipline to do the right thing, but there's no way in the world that you'll be able to fulfill this mitzvah of sanctifying, of making your whole life holy, unless your heart is open. Because if your heart is sluggish, and you feel dead inside, and you feel uninspired, and you feel like a heavy stone on your chest. You don't have the energy. You don't have the energy to walk away. Then you feel trapped. 
So you find it impossible to fulfill, to properly fulfill that mitzvah of sanctifying yourself, of transcending, of living a holy life, of bringing holiness into the world because of the sluggishness and the insensitivity and the dullness of your heart. So what do you do? What's the answer? In this case, the advice given in the Holy Zohar is, as the president of the Academy of Gan Eden said, a wooden beam which does not catch fire should be splintered, and similarly a body into which the light of the soul does not penetrate should be crushed, and thereby the body becomes receptive to the soul's light, as the Zohar concludes. What he's saying is, you're trying to light a fire, you have a thick piece of wood, and you're trying to light a fire, and the fire is not catching. So the Zohar says, this was given by the head of the yeshiva in heaven, the president, the dean of the yeshiva, the academy, of the heavenly academy in heaven, was giving this advice. A soul, who's like a person who feels like he's a clog, a piece of wood, and the fire is just not taking. She says the answer is not to pour more kerosene or to add more matches. She says no. The, the answer is splinter the wood itself. And the analogy is that when a person feels that his heart is clogged and he's not responding and he's dull and he's not sensitive and there's no reaction to anything spiritual or godly, he says the answer is not let me pray a little more. Let me meditate a little more. Let me study a little more Torah. That's not going to help you. You are clogged. You are clogged up. Your heart is clogged up. You're about to catch a heart attack. You need something. You need some CPR. You are the problem. You have to take this wood and you have to splinter it. We have to clear the arteries. You have to take the wood and you have to splinter it. In other words, it's going to explain that you have to take the ego, the arrogance. What's causing the clogging of the heart? Why the loss of appetite? You have a meal in front of you, a royal feast sitting in front of you. You're sitting, you're praying, you're learning. You have a royal feast and you have no, you have no hunger, you have no appetite. Where, where does this complacency come from? Why aren't you on fire? You should be yearning, you should be seeking, you should be searching. Your soul should be restless, a soul on fire. Why isn't your soul on fire? Because of your ego, your arrogance. You're so self-centered. You're so self-absorbed. You're so selfish. You're so egotistical. You can't even see beyond your own nose. You have to splinter that. You have to crack through that ego, that arrogance. You have to break that ego, that arrogance. Because this is ego in its worst excess. This is the... The core of ego could be something very healthy and very necessary and very essential. But this is just ego just gotten out of hand. Knows no limits. When a person becomes so egotistical that you become spiritually dead inside, that you lose any hunger for anything spiritual, for anything deep, for any depth, for anything substantial, for anything godly, for anything meaningful, that means you're so egotistical that you become, you become drunk drunk 
not ungodliness, <laughs> you become drunk and materialism. And you know, you know what you have to do to a drunk person? You know how you sober up a drunk person? You've got to slap him around a little. That's what you've got to do. You've got to slap yourself around a little. You become so drunk. You're so out of touch. You're so far from reality. You're so clueless. You're so self-absorbed in the most, absurd, most ridiculous way that you really have to crack yourself into splinters. You have to break that arrogance. You have to unclog, unclog those arteries. Continue. In the analogy quoted from the Zohar, we see that the wood is made receptive to the flame rather than the flame being increased or improved to the point where it overwhelms the wood. Similarly, with the insensitive heart, Timtum Halev must be eradicated by removing its underlying cause, as the Alter Rebbe will soon conclude, rather than overwhelmed by increasing the intellectual light of contemplation on the greatness of God. The reference to the light of the soul, which in this case does not penetrate the body, means that the light of the soul and of the intellect does not illuminate to such an extent as to prevail over the coarseness of the body. So if you notice here in the Zohar, in the beginning of the chapter, he, he was speaking of the clogging of the heart. He didn't say the clogging of the mind. Because in the beginning of the chapter, we're talking about the Benini. The Benini is one who controls his mind. It's just his heart that's clogged. So his mind is perceptive. His mind is sensitive. His mind understands and appreciates the concepts of godliness. But it doesn't reach home. It doesn't touch home. It doesn't, it doesn't touch his heart. The Zohar is not necessarily referring to the Benini. The Zohar is even talking about the Russia. So in the Russia, you can even have the possibility of someone who's not only clogged, his heart is clogged. Sometimes your mind is clogged. And that's, that's a much deeper, much more serious illness than the heart being clogged. Because when the mind is clogged, that means you, you, you don't even perceive it. You don't even have the clarity of mind to appreciate the concept. When you, don't even, when you can't even wrap your mind around the concept of godliness, about the infinite and appreciate the beauty of God and the greatness and the infinite of God. And, and if, you, if your mind can't even respond intellectually, to get excited at least intellectually, about godliness, that means you're so far removed that your mind is clocked. And you can hear and listen, it's like, ah, uh, like, like, like there's, no, there's no response, there's no intellectual response. That's, that's, that's much deeper. <laughs> that's a much deeper illness. It's like a brain tumor. That's a much deeper illness than, than, than just a problem with the heart. And the heart, heart is being clogged. So here he says, when he's explaining the Zohar, it's possible that the light of the neshama and the intellect, the godly intellect, does not illuminate the coarseness of the body. Okay, continue. Thus, Although he understands and meditates in his mind on the greatness of God, yet that which he understands is not apprehended and implanted in his mind to the point where it enables him to prevail over the coarseness of the heart. Because of the degree of their, the mind and hearts, coarseness and crassness. So the reason is, he says, it's because of the, the, the grossness and the coarseness 
of the mind and the heart and of the body, of the person. When a person, when you live a life of indulgence and your life, when you're so self-centered and so self-absorbed that you just become a very coarse human being. You know, the person who's coarse is usually the last person in the world to know it. To know it. <laughs> Everyone around them knows it. You, you just become a very spiritually ugly and disgusting person. You just become, you know, a person who's not capable of loving anyone other than themselves. A person who's not capable of really connecting with anyone other than themselves. A person who's not really able to to get excited about anything other than themselves, you really become a spiritual midget, a spiritual, ugly, disgusting, grotesque, very sick person, spiritually speaking. And um, it, it's, it's enough to disgust you. And when you start being disgusted, that's, that's the cure. That's breaking yourself into a thousand pieces. Instead of being so proud of yourself and complacent of yourself and so arrogant and so, when you start realizing how, how you look spiritually, objectively, how p- other people see you, how from an objective point of view, how low you've fallen, that you've become such a, such a, a, a person, such a, a meaningless, empty vessel, such a nobody and such a spiritually empty, ugly, disgusting, really human being you know you should you should feel insulted <laughs> you should really feel disgusted by yourself and that's the beginning of that's the beginning of the cure as he's going to say but this comes from the arrogance and the coarseness from the grossness from the type of lifestyle that you live until you become impossible and 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 um, you become ugly and disgusting and to everyone around you you hurt everyone around you you're not capable of treating other people respectfully and treating other people with love or treating other people. You just become a very coarse human being. You don't even realize how you just hurt everyone around you because you just become a totally self-absorbed human being. And no one else matters. No one else cares. Your heart is dead. Your heart is clogged. You don't feel anything. And um, it's, a very, very, it's a very sad place to be in. But that's exactly where you are. And you're walking around saying, I'm perfect. I'm complacent. I'm content. I'm smug. I'm happy with myself. The person who's really in the lowest of the low, who should really be disgusted with himself, is usually the person that's the happiest with himself. I'm so happy. I'm, so, I'm good. It's, it's clueless. Completely clueless. Oblivious. Comple- oblivious to, to what a low human being he's become. What a low life. He's become so coarse and so gross, he doesn't respond to anything God. Nothing moves him. Nothing, nothing gets to him. Nothing. He becomes unreachable. Okay. The cause of this deficiency is the arrogance of the klipa of the animal soul, which exalts itself above the holiness of the light of the divine soul, so that it obscures and darkens its light. So here he's saying that even if someone, it could very well be, that in other areas in his life, his mind is not clogged up. Like some people, their just mind has just become clogged up, and they just don't respond to any ideas. Any ideas. Whether it's in business, or whether it's in, in, in other areas in their life. 
But you can have a person who's very bright and very perceptive and the mind is open and even the heart is open to materialistic things. The worldly things. But when it comes to godly things, your mind is shut down. Your heart is shut down. There's no response. There's no, it doesn't evoke any response. No feeling, no response, no emotion. No, no, you don't feel inspired. You feel cold, indifferent. It's irrelevant to me. It doesn't move me. It doesn't change me. It doesn't affect me. Because the light, he says, the light, the holiness of the soul cannot penetrate. Because of the arrogance... So maybe your mind and heart are functioning in other areas in your life. But when it comes to godliness, you don't respond to godliness. Godliness doesn't inspire you. You're studying Torah. Torah is godly. It should inspire you. You should be excited. I'm studying Torah. I'm studying God's Torah. Cold, indifferent, irrelevant. Don't bother me. I have no time. I'm praying. I'm praying to God. It should inspire you. I'm talking to God. It leaves you cold. It leaves you indifferent. You can't wait to get out. You're looking at your wife. You're doing a mitzvah. You're doing something divine. It leaves you cold and inspired. The godly holiness, the light, cannot penetrate the darkness. Your heart is clogged. Your heart is stuffed. Your heart is... So what's the answer? Therefore, Therefore, one must crush it and cast it down to the ground. Just as in the previously quoted analogy, the beam is splintered so that it will catch fire. The Alter Rebbe now proceeds to explain how this is accomplished. He points out that the personality of the Benoni is his animal soul. When a Benoni says, quote, I, end quote, he is referring to his animal soul. Thus, by crushing his own spirit, he crushes the Sitra Achra and thereby enables the light of the soul and intellect to penetrate himself. This means that one must crush the Sitra Achra and cast it to the ground by setting aside appointed times for humbling oneself and considering himself despicable and contemptible, as it is written. The only answer is, you have to crush the arrogance. The arrogance, the excesses of the ego. This self-absorption and arrogance and smugness and contentness. How are you going to crush this arrogance? He says, by feeling disgusted with yourself. Because, you know, no one likes to be insulted. If someone insults you, you wake up. It bothers you. You respond. It could be you're asleep and indifferent to anything else. But when someone insults you, boy, are you awake. You're not asleep. You're not indifferent. You care. Oh, so mazel tov. Oh, you have feelings. Oh, you feel things. You're alive. I thought you're dead. So, you know, if no one else is going to do you the favor of insulting you, maybe insult yourself. Maybe we have a favor. Our spouses, you know, once in a while put us in our place. Maybe they're doing us a favor. They wake us up a little. Give us a little tickle. Hello, wake up. You're not dead yet. You know, you still respond. You still get insulted. That's fine. It's wonderful. But if no one's going to do us that favor, we have to do ourselves that favor and insult ourselves. Wake up. Are you so dead? Insult yourself. You disgusting human being. Look how low you are, low life. Yes, we live in a very, we always like to be positive, always positive, positive feedback, you know, and there's a whole school of thought in education. You always have to be, tell the children how wonderful they are and how great they are. And, um, you know, sometimes you can produce a monster. 
you know. Some of the worst criminals grew up in very wonderful homes and they were told how wonderful they are and they were never once in their life told otherwise. And they grew up into wonderful monsters. Um, a person has to, once in a while, a person has to humble himself. When you become so arrogant and so selfish and so self-centered and so self-absorbed until you become an impossible human being, stuffy and, 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 and just intolerable, you take yourself so seriously and become intolerable, you know, it's time to really start insulting yourself a little. Get under your own skin. Get under your own skin and start insulting yourself and, and just bring down that arrogance. Just enough of this arrogance. Some people take themselves so seriously. Some people are so, like, you know, like, come on, get off it. We're a who are, like, enough already. <laughs> it's intolerable. Some people are so, it's just, it's just disgusting. To everyone else except themselves. They're the last ones to see it. So it's very healthy. And he doesn't even give it a time. He doesn't say when. He says, find a time, any time. Whenever you find yourself a little too arrogant and stuffy and impassable and overbearing and, and just uh, enough of it, you know, come on. And you lose all humanity and all humaneness and you stop feeling any, any humane, humane feelings, loving feelings. You can't connect with everyone. Your heart is clogged. Your heart is like a stone. You're arrogant, indifference, cold. Start insulting yourself. Break yourself into a thousand pieces. Have a broken heart. As the great Hasidic Rebbe, Rabbi Yisrael of Ruzhin, once said, he says, there's nothing more whole than a broken heart. Because when your heart is broken, then you're real. Then your soul emerges. The real you, that beautiful little innocent child. As children, we're all beautiful and loving and a pleasure. What happened to that? What happened to that wonderful part within us? Where did it go? Where did it disappear? It's there, but it's hiding behind all that arrogance. And so you have to you have to crack through that shell. It's the clipper. He calls it the clipper, the shell that covers up. It's that that the shell of the peanut that's blocking blocking the fruit inside. You have to crack through the shell. You have to shatter it. You have to break your heart. Break your heart. You're feeling so good about yourself. You're feeling so wonderful. You're feeling so complacent and so content and, and you're on top of the world. You're so clueless. It's, it's pathetic. Break your heart. Insult yourself. Wake up. You know, when you insult yourself, you wake up and you're feeling very insulted. How dear. But if no one's going to do you the favor, do yourself the favor. Insult yourself. Feel broken. And once you feel shattered and broken a thousand pieces, then the beauty inside of you will emerge. The beauty is there. The soul is there. The neshama is there. You have a divine spark inside of you. It's there. But it's trapped. That's what Musar is? That's, that's what Musar. Musar. Not as a way of life. Here, we're talking about in a very specific... It's a very specific cure for a very specific situation. Thank God this doesn't happen all the time. Most of the time, our hearts, the heart is awake. You feel awake, you're inspired, you respond to holiness, you respond to godliness, you feel inspired. But occasionally, we have this problem. We all have this problem. Everyone has this problem occasionally. When your heart is like a stone, unbudgeable, unmovable. And no matter what you do, you couldn't care. You're cold, you're indifferent, and you're not responding. Not, you lost your appetite. You're not hungry. You're sick. This is the antidote. This is what you have to do. You have to humiliate yourself, denigrate yourself, 
insult yourself. Wake up. Wake yourself up. Crack through all that, all that shell, all that garbage that we surround ourselves with. And just become real. Humble. A person who's real is humble. A person who's arrogant, arrogant is a cover-up. The person who's more arrogant is usually the person who's more insecure. Of course, brilliant people are very arrogant. But it's really a cover-up. It's a cover-up for a deep inner, inner, inner insecurity. Because they're so clever, they cover it up very well. So you become very arrogant and nasty and you know, put offish. But the truth is, arrogance is a cover-up for insecurity. A person who's genuine is humble. There's no need for any cover-up. There's no need for any arrogance. There's no need. They're, they're real. They're connected. They're in touch they're able to make relations, real relations with other people. First and foremost with your spouse, because that's really the sign. A person who's wonderful with the whole world, it all begins and ends with your spouse. That's the sign if you're real or not. That, that, that's the sign. If, you're real, if you have a real relationship with your spouse, that means you're a real person. If not, so arrogance is really a cover-up for inner insecurities. But you can't deal with it, so you just, you just project it, and you just create this shell, and you create this artificial self. But it's sad. It's very sad to see this brilliant person and see how arrogant and impossible and stuffy they are, and just realize they're so, uh, they're so out of touch with themselves. So you, yes, you have to, once in a while you have to insult yourself. Get real. Humble. Crush that arrogance. A broken heart. There's nothing more precious than a broken heart. Now, doesn't seem to do Musar. Again, Musar is a way of life. Because the general approach is you have to be joyful. And every, you have to approach everything from a perspective of joy. And you have to um, view yourself. It's, it's like the difference between the holistic approach to life or the, or the pathological approach to medicine. You don't focus and dwell on the negativity. You focus and dwell on the positive. You have a divine spark. You have something precious inside of you. You want to live up to it. And that's fine. But here we're talking about when a person is suffering. A person's, your heart is clogged. The arteries are not working. The blood is not pumping. You learn. You pray. You understand. And yet you remain indifferent. Nothing moves you. Nothing touches you. Nothing inspires you. There's no change. There's no movement. Nothing shakes you up. But here, here you have to take drastic measures. That's what the Zohar says. The dean of the yeshiva in heaven said, when a person encounters such a situation, your heart is clogged, it's like a stone, then you have to splinter yourself into a thousand pieces. And, and you call that Musa? Or? Yeah, you give yourself Musa, absolutely, give yourself Musa. Look what a low life I am. Look what a disgusting, repulsive person I've become. Intolerable, unbearable, foolish, Arrogant, alienated everyone that's close to me. What, what, what has become of me? What am I? Why am I so proud of myself? Why am I so complacent? I'm a stone. I should be ashamed of myself. I should be embarrassed of myself. I'm an insult to mankind. And on and on and on. <laughs> Until your heart is broken. You start feeling a little sad and sorry. 
when your heart is broken, oh, now, now, the, the beautiful person inside of you is beginning to emerge. Now I see a real person with a broken heart, a real person. Who can have relations with other people, who can connect with other people, who can appreciate, who can love, who can respect, who can... A real person. And the truth is, when you don't love and respect someone else, it's because you don't love and respect yourself. The arrogant person has no relationship with himself either. It's not like he has a relationship with himself, but he doesn't have a relationship with anyone around him. Being selfish and self-centered and self-absorbed and arrogant and, and, and indulgent, that means you're alienated from yourself and from everyone else. You have no real relationship. Your heart is dead. You don't feel anything. So we've got to crack through that shell. We have, to, we have to reach the person. The person has to wake up. He's dying in us. You're dying in us. Where, where are you? I don't know what you've become. You're not, you're not a real... You're, there's nothing real here. There's nobody home. So it's time to wake up, you know, smell the coffee. But once you crack through that shell and you have a broken heart, you can feel again. You can feel alive again. You can, you can relate to yourself again. You can relate to those around you. You can start loving, respecting, being hungry for life, being hungry to learn, being hungry to grow, hungry to change. Now you're alive. Mazel tov. Welcome back to welcome back. You've been resurrected. You're practically dead. When your heart is stuffed, you're practically dead. You're not alive. So we need, we need this, is, this is CPR. We, need, I mean, we have to revive you, resurrect you. You have to crack through that shell. Until you crack through that shell, it's just a waste of time. So it's not by pouring more kerosene, learning more. It's not going to help you. Meditating more. You're in the way. Your arrogance and your coarseness and your grossness and your self-absorption and self-centeredness and so delusional and so disconnected from reality. Psychotic almost. Like disconnected from reality. So you have to wake up. This is, this is so the way to do this, yes, is insulting yourself. Yes. Not as a way of life in general. Not to walk around with your head down. But when you're so arrogant and so disproportionate to reality, your sense of self is so disproportionate to any reality, you become so delusional. And this is the only response. You've got you to really bring, bring it down to earth. Hello, wake up. Come. Earth calling. <laughs> Put everything into perspective. Come back to, to life. Get real. So a little insult is, is very healthy in this case. So when, when the Jew confesses, you know, every day we, we confess the Sham the Baghana. So uh, Hasidic Rebbe once commented, he said, he said he's not he's not hitting his Yetzahara, he's 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 uh, stroking it, he's glutting it, he's you know that that's not called that's not making a dent. Making a dent is get a little insulted, Shamna, feel bad. It should hurt you, it should bother you, it should feel something. When you're not feeling anything. A person is sick. He's not responding to any, any normal stimulation. You've got you to gotta wake up that hunger. What's the first sign of, cure, of, of when a person is back, when he's curing, when he's healing, when he, when he gets your appetite back? Suddenly you're hungry again. You join the living. You're hungry again. You're hungry for life. But when your heart becomes so dull and insensitive and clogged and coarse, and this, then you're not responding to anything. That's a sign of arrogance. That's the, that's the symptom. The, the core, root cause is arrogance, ego. And therefore, yeah, not a healthy ego. 
extremely unhealthy ego, a distorted, grotesque form of ego. And that has to be cracked, broken into a thousand pieces. By insulting yourself. To be continued.